Welcome to Cracked, for readers, by readers. I'm your host, Monique. The inspiration and intent behind the podcast was twofold, and it's to take that time to look at a deeper dive into other authors and their works. So today, I'm sitting down with my dear friend, Yasmin, who's joining me from well across the world. And we're exploring the works of the late and great and amazing James Baldwin. So James was born in Harlem, New York, in 1924. He died in 1987 in uh, France. And his work has been incredibly prolific and quoted numerous times by various authors. You can find today The Fire Is Upon Us, The Fire This Time, Ta-Nehisi Coates, also makes tribute to him in the between the world and me and just about everyone in terms of literary prowess or knowledge knows who James Baldwin is so today as I said I am joined by my dearest friend Yasmin Mohideen from across the world and I'm gonna let Yasmin tell you a little bit about herself and maybe even how we met We met in university. We did. Um, in first year, we lived on the same floor at Carleton. Um, it was an all-girls floor, and I, I really, we just ran into each other and talked, and then we were eating together at the cafeteria. And I don't even think we had any classes together, really. Um, but I think you're right. We had zero classes. We didn't. Um, despite having kind of a bit of an overlap. But yeah, we've maintained our friendship um, through eight, 19 years. Crazy. It's been a long time. Known you a long time. That's almost half my life. 22 decades. Right. <laughs> okay. So as you all know, I am also an avid reader. And that is why I'm having started this podcast is so that I can speak to other avid readers who we normally have we normally have these conversations anyway about various authors and their work and how it influences us. So this is not new for Yaz and I. <laughs> so in speaking about James Baldwin, Yaz, why don't we start with um, telling everyone out there which books we decided to read for this particular episode. Do you want to go ahead? I read Notes of a Native Son um, for the second time. I had first read it a few years ago and I needed a refresher. Then I read um, If Beale Street Could Talk and Another Country. So I think for us, the overlap there is If Beale Street Could Talk, which was the only fiction piece of his that I have ever read. I read, or in my case, reread The Fire Next Time and The Devil Finds Work. And for me, the way I discovered James Baldwin was through Noah Berlatsky, who was a journalist with The Atlantic. And he wrote this piece for culture about James Baldwin's work, The Devil Finds Work, which is a book-length essay 
calling it the most powerful piece of film criticism ever written. And I thought I need to explore that. I need to dive into this individual's work. And I had just finished my master's at that time. So I was reading it really through that lens of political sociology. A beautiful article, I highly recommend reading that, but that was, he was the one who back in around 2014-ish got me into reading more of James Baldwin's work. And I started with The Devil Finds Work and The Fire Next Time. So picked up If Beale Street Could Talk for this episode specifically. So Yasmin, can you tell me a little bit about how you first became conscious of James Baldwin's work? I'm sad to say it's a recent discovery. I had not heard of him until 2017. I was watching a documentary called I Am Not Your Negro, and I discovered that by accident as well. I was on a very long flight, and that is where I was first. I just realized as well that that documentary was actually based on an unfinished Baldwin manuscript. I think, remember this house? possibly. Um, and I didn't know that at the time, but that documentary is basically Baldwin talking about his friendship with Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, who obviously I knew, and then Medgar Evers. And I didn't, I didn't know who Medgar Evers was either. So the entire thing was very eye-opening. And from there, I obviously went and Googled James Baldwin. And, and since then, obviously in the last few months with Black Lives Matter and George Floyd, he's everywhere. Um, taken out of context quite a bit, as is Martin Luther King a lot. <laughs> so it's a, yeah, it's an education. Altogether. So as you're saying, taken out of context, but also misquoted quite frequently, or having quotes ascribed to him that are not actually his. Um, so for me, I actually don't know who Medford, what's his name is. <laughs> so you want to tell us a little bit about him? Well, um, he was also a civil rights activist, and, that, and that's really all I know. Um, it's from that documentary. I, I have a lot more to learn, so I won't, I won't pretend that I know any more than that. But he was um, assassinated as well. And the whole documentary is, is obviously about the African-American experience, but uh, is... James Baldwin talking about those three people, Malcolm X, MLK, Medgar Evers, and his relationships with them. That's super cool. Okay. So let's start at the end in some ways. Given the books that you've read by James Baldwin, would you continue to read him? And which book do you think you'd look forward to reading next? Yes. Uh, I would never, I, I mean, there's very few authors that I would ever say I can't read again um, because I've only read a fraction of his work and the ratio is two to one for fiction to nonfiction. And I think because I was introduced to Baldwin as in a nonfiction capacity and because his social relevance comes through both fiction and nonfiction, but because I have thus far enjoyed the nonfiction more, I would absolutely continue to keep reading him um, and I would probably, so I have his bibliography open in front of me. And again, as I explained, um, off the record, um, I selected the nonfiction books for this because of convenience. I didn't really know what they were about. If I had to, I think I would 
my next book of his will be nonfiction. I do want to, I do want to read The Fire next time, but also he has some essay collections. There's The Price of the Ticket as well. There's, um, there's also, I mean, some of his other fiction, I, I'd like to read as much as I could by him, but um, another country this <clears throat> did not, for me, was not a page turner. Uh, and, and I don't think it has to, I mean, that's not, he's he's he wasn't trying to be that that wasn't what he was trying to do as an author um so yeah i think i would just continue to read baldwin until i read everything by him i'm not sounding very articulate or intelligent right now but i don't know how else to answer that question i'm sorry well why don't i answer the question for myself um and that'll take a little pressure off you so i don't know if we even mentioned which books we read but for me as i said i discovered baldwin before with the fire next time and the devil finds work and i chose to read if beale street could talk for this one so i thought maybe I too should dive into a little bit of his fiction and explore that and because I had seen the film. I remember seeing the Brad Pitt produced film a few years ago. It was directed by Barry Jenkins, the same guy who directed Moonlight. And I was super curious, uh, having watched the film, which had such a beautiful, lyrical, blues-like flow to it, to read the book. And in reading the book, I found that it had the similar flow. So Kudos to Jenkins for pulling that out of the film and allowing the film in color, in music, in rhythm to emulate the book so well. And I think for me, so I tried reading Another Country. I did open it. I think I read a couple of pages and decided very kind of judiciously to limit myself to three books for Baldwin. And I think when we start diving into each of the books, it will make more sense why it's difficult to cover more with him. And I think for me, in terms of next books, I do want to go through and finish Another Country. It's one of his experimental books, one of two fiction books that he wrote as sort of a fictional experiment in terms of his white and black characters in that in those books and I can't recall what the second one was but like you I am more drawn to his nonfiction, and so I am very interested in reading Nobody Knows My Name and Notes of a Native Son which I have I just haven't read and the curious thing I think we discussed this some time ago off the record is that Notes of a Native Son is sort of a a response to Richard Wright's book, Native Son, which I still haven't read. Um, I is coming from the library, hopefully soon. I'm very proud library supporter. So I don't know whether it matters whether I read Notes of a Native Son first or read Native Son first, but whichever I have time for and can fit into the reading life, that's the one that gets read. So I think in terms of his work, We've both indicated that we prefer his fiction. If you were to recommend to someone a place to start with James Baldwin, what would you recommend and why would you recommend it? I would encourage them to see, to, to read 
Baldwin first as as a, a social critic, which you again, he could be that through fiction or nonfiction, but I think his nonfiction is the most relevant way to start. Um, and I just to go back to your point, I haven't read Native Son either, and I didn't I had not heard of it till I picked up this book. And only one of the essays, one or two of the essays in Notes of a Native Son are specific to that. But yeah, I was I was lacking context. Like there's a few things he references where I did not have the context. I, I there's Native Son. He talks about the movie Carmen, which I haven't seen, where he explores blackness. So aside from that, there's a lot of other things there where you don't really need any of that context. And, and so I would still encourage people to start with any of his nonfiction works, whether they're a collection of essays. I think it's really important to understand. So I feel like an imposter. I'm not black. I'm never going to experience the black. Like, I'm never going to understand the black experience in America or anywhere, but I can empathize. And I already did before I read Baldwin. It's not like, wow, I get it. You know, I got it before. Um, not to sound, I'm not trying to sound self-aggrandizing, but I mean, the, the reason he is in the consciousness of, you know, the American or North American public today is because of what's been going on for the last several months. But I think you have to read his nonfiction and it's evident in his fiction as well. There, there's a rage, there's a rage that he feels as a black man that I'm sure is present for a lot of people. And it's a rage that is suppressed for his own safety and security until it comes out. And what better way to understand a lot of things than to read about that? Well, I really love that you mentioned the rage. And I do feel that there's a point, I believe it's in The Devil Finds Work, where he mentions that rage because he talks about the fear that the white man has in relation to the fear that a black man has and how it's essentially different because in the way that a white person or a white man is afraid of a black man he often refers to uh, many of the groups in terms of the male or man is certainly a fear of that um, black individual and their and essentially their blackness and in terms of the black experience of rage, and I'm paraphrasing here because I haven't located the quote in my copy, um, the terms of the fear that a black man feels, he's like, that is experiences through rage. And that is where it's sort of expressed. And it's fascinating to think that there is that confusion and that lack of understanding and how it's perpetrated through film in in Baldwin's work and his critique basically of film, it's that without that understanding and without that lens, as you said, you can empathize, but it's difficult to then tell the story and tell it truthfully without having the experience. And I think that's why we see so many actors, producers, and individuals within Hollywood pushing to have more female directors, more black directors or Asian, et cetera, in order to tell these varied stories so that people can become aware of them. And perhaps in becoming aware, that empathy muscle might be exercised and strengthened through that awareness. Well, 
there's in in another country though um there is rage but there's also discomfort within friendships so, so there's interracial relationships um and there is resentment in those as well so yes you have you have the rage that is in notes of a native son there's an example where james baldwin goes to a diner where he knows he's not going to be served and he throws a glass at a waitress and he runs because he knows that he could possibly die after that but then there's other examples of in intimate relationships or in friendships that resentment i mean it's maybe not rage but it's resentment because one person in that relationship is never really going to understand the other experience but also he i think i have a quote in uh, in another country um the relationship between the two two of the main male characters it's a i mean there's you have you have gay relationships you have interracial relationships it's very layered but you have this unspoken acknowledgement that the white man in the relationship has some kind of fear or hatred of the black man and the black man has a resentment of this hatred that tension is there it's spoken but it's also i think evident in the way it's written and it outlines the complexity of you know this was the 50s or the 60s in harlem so being gay or being black you know neither was very easy and that completely makes sense so you also read another country yeah that was that and if Beale Street could talk in notes of a native son. So was another country, I thought that was fiction as well, or is it? It is fiction. It's fiction. Yeah. But I mean, probably mirrored some of Baldwin's experiences. Actually, what, so every time I finish reading a book, I, I wiki it, I Google it. I want to know what other people's interpretations are. And uh, without giving away too many spoilers, the, the main one of the main characters is, is Rufus. And the interpretation, and I think Baldwin may have said this, I'm not sure, but it's interpreted as this character of Rufus, who's this struggling musician wandering the streets of Harlem, that had Baldwin stayed in America, maybe he would have been Rufus. Interesting. In what way would he have been Rufus? Well, uh, Rufus... Again, I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but Rufus is essentially, um, he's bisexual. He's a struggling musician who kind of depends on other people's generosity to survive. Um, he has troubled relationships with a lot of people, including his own family. Had he not gone to Paris, maybe he wouldn't have been able to Right. I mean, I'm not exact. This is just one interpretation. But the second part of that book takes place. There's a character in uh, in France who is, again, bisexual or that you find that out later. But one of the interpretations is that that character represents Baldwin as he was in France, somewhat more established, but also missing America. It's clear, James Baldwin talks about how he loves America, but, you know, obviously has a huge problem with his existence in that country. Um, and he talks about, in, in Notes of a Native Son, there's, he talks about Africans in, in France in the 60s who had come from colonial Africa, who at least could kind of trace their history and ancestry to a particular place 
which the black American cannot do. All they have is America, really, and look how they've been treated there. I think so. I'll, ideally, I'd like to talk about one book at a time, but I think it's going to be quite impossible with James Baldwin, with Baldwin, because his work seems to overlap so strongly. And so just there, as you mentioned, um, the Africans of the 1960s and their ties to um, their place, their sense of place, basically, in the world. They know they're from present-day Nigeria or present-day Congo. Well, not Nigeria, especially not in France, but present-day Congo or Rwanda or Niger or Côte d'Ivoire, whichever the case may be. For the Black American, or basically any member of what is often referred to as the Black diaspora, the only home that you really have is the one that you grow up in, whether that is Brazil, the U.S., Canada, or Mexico. That's home. And yet, at home, oftentimes this group is told, no, you don't belong here, which is of course, angering, because in many cases, in all of those cases I just named, that group was brought there to build the country. And in The Fire Next Time, which is a combination of two essays, in the first one where he's written a letter to his nephew, his namesake, James, he writes, For this is your home, my friend. Do not be driven from it. Great men have done great things here and will again. And we can make America what America must become. So he's still super hopeful in this book called The Fire Next Time, which it would be entirely possible to read the book and only be conscious of the rage. But his rage, his anger, any rage or anger that he feels, no matter in the three books that I read, is always tempered by a deep love a deep love of humanity, a deep love of his countrymen, a deep love of his country. It's, yeah, it's impossible for me to not talk about all the, the cross, the similarities and the themes across books. Um, yes, he does display optimism in a lot of his writing, but it, there's, there's, despair throughout his entire yeah his entire existence um was almost sounds contradictory but it's like he chose to be an emigre he wasn't a he, he was almost a refugee by choice which isn't um which is again a paradox but i think he had the option to leave a situation where he felt so unsafe. I mean, you are physically unsafe as a black man in America, even now. So he, he felt that his life was under threat and he felt so unsafe that he chose to go to another country where, and there's a story in Notes of a Native Son where he's arrested in Paris. And it's kind of funny because he gets, I mean, it's fine, he gets out of jail, but Imagine had that happened in America, it probably would have ended differently. So I do see despair and optimism and also like a, 
sense of bizarre sort of juxtaposition of these two situations that he's in. Because he's not, you know, the French, even today, if you can see everything that's going on there, they're, they're not quick to embrace people as their own. And, and he does allude to those stereotypes of the French um, in his writing, but yeah. I fully agree. And so I should probably disclose, I mean, I am black, I'm from Canada and decidedly very much Canadian. I don't have any other country to claim. I don't wish to claim any other country. I, in reading James Baldwin, it's interesting because it gives you that experience, that sense of constantly being asked or treated as a guest in your own home, where people will ask you, oh, where are you from? I'm like, well, this city in Canada, do you not know where it is? And so it's often, you know, part of that experience. And then there's also the defense of that questioning. So that's part of the experience in Canada. But when you're speaking to feeling safe in the U.S., so funny story, I was in the U.S. last year for a friend's wedding and driving without Wi-Fi and without GPS to the guest house where I'd be staying for a couple of days. And I got horribly lost in this acreage farmland area. And sure, I'm in wine country, California, However, I had the brief thought of stopping at someone's property to ask for directions and quickly dismissed it, remembering that I was in a country where guns were largely legal. And eventually I did find out, figure out where I was going. I figured out the directions I'd written down, but that is a thought that would not have as quickly entered my mind had I been just about anywhere else in the world. So that's part of the experience even today. And so why don't we explore, is there anything else within, I know it's gonna come up again, certainly, but is there anything else within another country, for example, that you feel should be explored or that readers should be aware of going into it so that they kind of know what that feel is that they'll be getting for this particular work? It's just the confluence of sexuality and race in the 1950s or 60s is is enough to set the stage for any book i think but i would um it's split into two sections as i mentioned before um it, it wasn't my it, like it wasn't a book that i would go and read again like it wasn't like oh this is such a great life-changing book that wasn't it for me it was interesting i read it for this podcast um but I read it and I got it. And then I wanted to read other people's interpretations of it. And that is interesting and relevant to Baldwin, but that's really, that's it for me. Like, it, you know, I, I would rather go and read his nonfiction. Yeah, I, I just, one, one takeaway, one that we already discussed was just that tension in interracial relationships. So there's more than one interracial relationship in that book but there is an unspoken or, or some occasionally verbalized tension and, and resentment, um, whether it's not understanding another person's experience, whether it's the fact that that relationship is taking place in an environment where race is used to dominate and control people. That's probably. Yeah. 
So before we go into his nonfiction, because I feel like we're probably going to end up spending the bulk of our time there, the other fiction one that we both read was If Beale Street Could Talk. And what's interesting about that one is the title, I believe, refers to a street possibly in Tennessee. Maybe I'm making that up, but it's the subject of a blues song. And when I watched the movie and when I read the book, it was very evident that there is that wave-like factor to the story because it opens with Tish and Clementine, Tish, and her lover, Alfonso or Fawny, and he's in jail. And I don't think you know at the very beginning that he's in jail for something he didn't do, but it's also highly relevant to our times today. And it's a book that at once could be incredibly despairing, but has so many moments of lightness, of levity, of endearing humanity and love to it that I felt fiction-wise this would probably be an excellent entry into James Baldwin's fiction. I agree. Um, yeah, I don't think it's clear in the beginning why he's in jail or what he's accused of or that he didn't do it. Um, so for me, right from the beginning, it was very a stark contrast to another country because it's portraying a, a love story that began very early on. It was a friendship. They became, you know, they get married. They are um, a monogamous couple. And it's very different from the relationships that are portrayed, heterosexual and homosexual, that are portrayed in another country. So it's a very, and like Tish is a very naive, like innocent, like, you know, she's a very earnest girl. She's like 18. So that was a stark contrast. And it was also kind of, um kind of easy to follow um and and the whole the family dynamics um religion religion kind of comes through in a lot of james baldwin's work i mean he was a, a preacher as a kid um the religious mother of fozzy um i do think that i did like if beale street could talk a little more um not 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 that it, when i say i like it i think it was a little easier to read for me than another country I did not know it had been turned into a movie before I read it and I have not seen it. I will have to check it out. I did not know Brad Pitt was involved. I don't know if that's a positive or negative. Um, <laughs> we'll see. So he's involved, but unlike 12 Years a Slave, which he also produced, he's not in the film. So 12 Years a Slave was great because he has a small cameo and no big deal. If Beale Street Could Talk is a film where there actually is no room for him. There is no character that he could legitimately or might even want to play, really. Um, I, I thought the movie was, as I said, beautifully done. And I do agree with you. I do feel that this book was more accessible. I did enjoy it. I love the rhythm of it, as I said earlier. And what's interesting is, I think when we get to the nonfiction, some of the pieces that come up in his nonfiction in The Fire Next Time and likely in Notes of a Native Son are also present in If Beale Street Could Talk. And I think that makes perfect sense because the nonfiction is his opportunity from, as an essayist, really, to explore these ideas and his relationship with his country and his place in his country and his identity. And the Fiction is a place where he can still bring it forward, but it doesn't take center stage in its 
in a different way. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, it doesn't take center stage because there's so much else going on. But for me, it's impossible to, you know, read any of his work without noticing that not much has changed. I mean, we're 50, 60 years into the future and, you know, things have changed on paper. We've had a, a black president in the United States, but that's about it. How curious. So just another quote from The Fire Next Time. I'm wondering now if I actually read The Fire Next Time first, in any case. To close his letter to his nephew, he writes, You know, and I know, that the country is celebrating 100 years of freedom, 100 years too soon. We cannot be free until they are free. God bless you, James, and Godspeed. And I mean, that he wrote that letter in celebrate at the time that America was celebrating 100 years of emancipation. And that's how he closes the letter to his son. And we, even when we look at the news today and we're seeing that the very same images that began the Black Lives Movement in 2014, 2013, I believe, are the exact same images we're seeing today in 2016 and 2020. And Time Magazine is able to juxtapose the same protest signs against 1960, 1965, same country. So it begs the question, where is the progress? It's, it's on paper. Um, the, I don't think that the typical, this isn't, this isn't restricted to America, but of course America is kind of the epicenter of, of everything we talk about when we talk about Baldwin. Um, I have a lot of quotes of his that I had written down that are still relevant today. In another country, he says, or he thinks, let the liberal white bastard squirm when he discovers his occasional male sexual partner. Or that's, um, he thinks that when his partner finds the main character in bed with a woman who's white, so that allusion to liberal white America is quite constant because there's a couple in that book who are kind of the embodiment of like, they're not yuppies, they have children, but you know, they're the, the liberal white authors of New York or Brooklyn or wherever they live. And then there's an incident in that book where race comes up again and it affects them directly. And then you see how their attitude to race, like, you know, with liberal America, you think they're liberal and then things happen and then you realize, well, you know, maybe you really aren't as understanding as, as we first thought. But yes, yeah, so many quotes of his. I'm actually going to reveal one of my favorite ones right now because it is a conversation that so many people are having today. And this is one of his quotes that strangely enough is not out there all that much. This one is from The Fire Next Time, and he refers to the Third Reich and the Second World War uh, because he went to a school with, I suppose, a very present Jewish population. And so it's very natural to, for him at that age to have been aware of it. But he then writes about 
the black soldiers who have gone to fight for their country, who put on the uniform of the United States, who have then been called racial epithets by their um, comrades at arms, who are not able to go to the same GI dances on the same nights as their fellow soldiers. And then they come back to the U.S. And he says, you need to be in their shoes as they're looking for a job, for a place to live, ride in their skin on the segregated buses. And so he mentions that there's a, and I quote, the subtle and deadly change of heart that might occur in you would be involved with the realization that a civilization is not destroyed by wicked people. It is not necessary that people be wicked, but only that they be spineless. And then he goes on to give the example of being in the Chicago O'Hare airport and the barman doesn't want to serve him and his friends. And so they put up a bit of a, a protest and eventually get the manager in. And the manager excuses his barman saying he's new. And it was loud enough that the rest of the bar could have heard what was happening. And anyone else, anyone else of these potentially liberal Chicago whites could have stood up and interjected on his behalf and his friend's behalf, and they don't. And in fact, after the incident, one of them comes up to him and says, or asks if they are students. And one of his friends says, you know what? You didn't want to talk to us earlier. We don't want to talk to you now. And the individual is visibly hurt by this. But then another one, a Korean War veteran, Baldwin mentions, uh, points out to him that, you know, you could have stood up earlier. Why didn't you? And the response from this white man is, I lost my conscience a long time ago. And he turns and walks out. And so on the basis of that evidence, basically Baldwin's asking, has everyone lost their conscience? Because there are a lot of people who are confronted on a daily basis with racism, systemic and otherwise, and they don't say anything. And I constantly hear this conversation of, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to say anything. And a lack of consciousness, consciousness of the fact that in not saying anything, that moment of inaction, of silence, is in fact a condoning of what has happened. It gives that person permission to say those things, to do those things again in front of them and they know that they will get away with it. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that section from the fire next time, or if there's anything related in what you read. His writing is peppered with those kinds of examples. Um, and then of course, you know, in Beale, if Beale Street could talk, <clears throat> there are examples of white people sticking up for black people. I will say that I'm guilty of, of not knowing how to respond, not in, in a, the example that you gave, which is a very blatant example of racism, but in terms of when you hear microaggressions, not really knowing how to respond, not being able to articulate why something is wrong. I think as a society, we're becoming much more aware of how to deal with those things. It's, it's, it's a struggle. Um, he alludes, there's so many examples where he 
actually doesn't say anything where he knows he's not going to be served and he gets up and walks out. Um, and just on, it's interesting when you talked about the Jewish population that was close, like that was in his immediate surroundings. He talks about anti-Semitism a lot in Notes of a Native Son. And I'm not really sure where like the black anti-Semitism that he's talking about, if it comes from the, like the new, cause he talks about the new, the Bible a lot. If it, if it comes from a religious Christian element or if it comes from the fact that the Jewish population in America was a minority, but they were more successful in a lot of ways and had a certain, you know, they were obviously and racially, they were technically, they were white, at least, you know, I'm not sure where, when I read that piece in Notes of a Native Son, I wasn't sure, I wasn't clear where that anti-Semitism comes from. But it's clear that Baldwin is making an argument against it, obviously. But that that kind of was something that I I was curious about. He he talks about when he was a socialist briefly when he was younger, that he would keep fighting against anti-Semitism and that he found that so many black people were, you know, virulently anti-Jew. So that's really interesting because I I was not really aware that that had been a huge problem. There is actually a scene in The Fire Next Time where he is defending one of his Jewish friends to his father. And he and his father had, according to his take on their relationship, a very um, strained relationship. His father was very much of the church. And when Baldwin was of the church for about three years, he was safe. He could handle his father. He had outwitted his father. But it was actually one of his Jewish friends, and he mentions this in The Devil Finds Work, who helped to pull him away from that church and helped him to see what what the camera or the lens of his family and you know the friends and the um, preachers were not allowing him to see. And he defends this Jewish friend to his father by saying, he is more Christian than you. And so it's really fascinating. I actually don't know where black anti-Semitism, if it's really any different from white anti-Semitism. I suspect that it is rooted in the Bible. And that still doesn't make any sense to me in terms of the interpretation that allows for this ideology or feeling to exist. But I don't, the, it's interesting because Jewish people uh, occupy a very strange hybridized space within these racial politics because often in terms of, and I believe it's the Ashkenazi, they are they are white in appearance. Yet when you look to a lot of the alt-right groups today, they would not have them. There is still a strong sense of anti-Semitism there. And so it's, I don't even know if someone who is Jewish can really get their head around this. And that would, that's a question I'm going to have to reserve for them because I really don't know. I'm going to have to go to my, my Jewish friends and even in speaking with them, they've said often the same thing. Like we occupy this sort of bizarre one foot in, one foot out stance that, and I don't, I imagine 
from my own experience how awkward that is to walk that line. And even going back to, you mentioned him, he was in Paris in the 1960s and earlier as well. And he found that that was a place for him to escape. Now, what's interesting is that I think the reason he could escape to Europe in that period is because he was a black American. If he had been a colonial African, it would have been a very different experience in that space. But the minute that they, you know, they realize, the French realize that he is a black American, that is what shapes his experience there. Yes, but also, um, so there's a quote where he talks about um, the African Negro is viewed as a colonial and his bitterness is unlike that of his American kinsmen is in that it is not so treacherously likely to be turned against himself. And he says that in there's he was arrested briefly in Paris and that evening at the police station, I was not despised as a black man. They would simply have laughed at me if I behaved like one, behaved like one for them. I was an American. So great he's finally an american um more than he is anything else but that's not i mean the greatest thing to be and the americans are laughed at in europe for the most part you know you know rightfully so in some cases but yep <laughs> indeed I, you know what i've had that experience myself when i lived in australia they would refer to the blacks and it was really fascinating because in the way that they would refer to the blacks it was very clear that to them, in that moment, I was not black because their blacks were the aboriginals. And it was a bizarre shift that I had to make in my head to understand what they were speaking of at that time. Because I, I knew that internationally I would occupy different spaces, but it very clearly demonstrates how, how lightly and how quickly our identities shift. And I should actually find that quote about identity. I'll find it eventually. But I, yeah, I think that was quite accurate. Is there anything else uh, quote-wise from any of the books you read that really struck you? Yes. Um, in fact, I stopped, I stopped writing them down because there were so many. Um, I love it. I, random. So page 94, he talks about his distrust of white people um white people like so he says um his father so he lots of stories about how he basically hated his father and his father insisted that he be a preacher didn't understand why he would rather be a writer um and his father made it clear that this quote-unquote education of mine was going to lead me to perdition he became more explicit and warned me that my white friends in high school were not really my friends and that I would see when I was older how white people would do anything to keep a Negro down. Some of them would be could be nice, he admitted, but none of them were to be trusted and most of them were not even nice. The best thing was to have as little to do with them as possible. So his father obviously was speaking from personal experience, but that distrust um, clearly Baldwin met and befriended white people who he did have a good relationship with, but I feel like that distrust that don't, you know, have as little to do with them as possible is something that probably, I can't speak for black people, obviously, but like 
it, it would not be, it, it would be sensible to think that way. I would understand why you would want to protect yourself in that way today if you live in like Florida or Alabama or something. Or even Canada, really. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, really? yes. Yeah, I mean, I shouldn't <laughs> limit it to America. And I mean, again, I'm from Nova Scotia, so, you know, we're small and these things happen everywhere. So, and I, I have been guilty of thinking that, you know, the Maritimes is is not like Alberta, no offense, Alberta girl, but we, we like to pat ourselves on the back and we really shouldn't be. There's a lot of things happening with indigenous people and, and our indigenous black population as well. So, I mean, yeah. Yeah. And even if we consider the issue of the fisheries and the RCMP today, so. Yeah. Um, I'm going to match your quote. So there, because there is this observation that you have to develop out of self-preservation to really know who you're dealing with. And so a lot of people love to quote that Maya Angelou um, one, where she says, when people show you who they are, believe them. And it's a quote that you almost have to live by as someone who is within the really racialized majority. Because, and I say majority because I mean global majority, that you have to pay attention. And so Baldwin actually writes in The Devil Finds Work, blacks perceive danger far more swiftly, and however odd this may sound, than attempt to protect their white comrade from his white brothers. They know their white comrade's brothers far better than the comrade does. And oftentimes that's because there's this desire to explain away or excuse individuals based on their whiteness. And as someone who has to deal and see that person at their worst oftentimes or the way they treat individuals who they do not perceive a kinship with, you realize very quickly what minor signs and symbols to look out for among the so-called liberals to figure out where they stand. And so you don't need someone like the current American president to be elected to know who sits on which side of the fence, really. Self-preservation is a good way of putting it, what it all comes down to. Survival. Yeah, totally. It's about survival. So the other one, and so I really, when I read The Devil Finds Work, I think it took me a good two years before I could sit and watch any Hollywood movie without seeing all of the pieces that didn't fit. Because he mentions quite a few books in here that I, or films in here that I have seen and if, quite a few that I have never seen and others that I have absolutely no desire to see. Looking at you, Birth of a Nation. So it, uh, it's fascinating. He talks about um, Lawrence of Arabia, which I think I saw that film decades ago. I must have been maybe 10 or so years old when I sat through that one. And before he looks into it, he speaks to identity. And that was that identity quote that I mentioned before. He says, identity would seem to be the garment with which one covers the nakedness of self, in which case it is best that the garment be loose, a little like the robes of the desert, through which robes 
one's nakedness can always be felt and sometimes discerned. And I love, love, love that quote. But it's fascinating because oftentimes we wear, we have so many levels of identity that we walk through the world with. And that observation seems to ask us to strip, strip back to our key identity, our overarching identity, our human identity, and recognize that at the end, we really are all the same. We really are all connected. And so all of these labels and identities that we wish to wear, I like the idea of wearing them loosely, whether it is transgendered or black or Canadian or American or Christian or Muslim, etc., that they can be worn loosely because as we've already mentioned, they can also shift very quickly. We're not static as individuals. We evolve and in evolving, in wearing our identities loosely, it would allow them to evolve with us. Oh, absolutely. Your, your identity shifts when you shift to any new place and it shifts based on your surroundings. And that, and that actually ties into a quote that I'm not able to find. Um, but he says, there's an argument that, this is a quote, Negroes in America are better off than starving Europeans. That means nothing to Negroes who haven't seen Europe. You're making the best of a bad bargain. And that's interesting. That's Because that's an argument that people made about apartheid South Africa. Well, you know, black people are better off here than they are anywhere else. I mean, what kind of argument is that? So again, that, def I mean, and I, I can't, exactly. the reason I'm looking for that in the book is because I'm not sure if, if that's an argument that he's accusing black people of like black leaders, like black politicians of making, because he's talking about the black political class and how they're kind of sterile in a sense at that time, maybe less so now. Um, yeah. Right before that quote, he talks about Negro leaders being more concerned with with their careers than the welfare of Negroes. And then he talks about that argument that, well, you're better off here than you are anywhere else. Of course, a black politician would say that. And I mean, when I hear that quote, I think of the late Herman Cain, rest in peace, but the class of black political leaders who has been co-opted by, you know, Republicans, um, apologists, you, I mean, Colin Powell seems to have grown a conscience since he left the Bush administration, but he didn't really have one at the time. But can I blame these people for doing what they did? It was self-preservation after all, probably, right? Like it's easy to kind of come down hard on them for their political views. And Herman Cain was, I mean, I don't know what he was going on with him, but can you really blame people for joining that whole bandwagon? if it was the only way for them to literally survive and, and make a living. I have spent the last seven or eight years living in India, and it's fascinating because the exact same thing applies here when you look at socioeconomic differences and caste in particular, and how literally you have to this day a system of discrimination that is somewhat sanctioned, if not by the state, then by society. And you have the exact same thing that happens here with leaders who come from lower castes when you have people who are co-opted by the majority and they, they are willingly co-opted as a survival mechanism. So it's really fascinating to see all these parallels. But I think that's the constant is that 
in order for them to exist within these groups, they have to disconnect or shed and or basically put on some form of sunglasses in order not to see what is directly in front of them. And so you can't blame them. I feel like you can only pity them at that point. No, you have to become mainstream, but that's the problem. It doesn't work. Um, and I, and, and I, I, because I studied comparative politics and I just can't help but draw parallels to any, you know, liberation movement that is co-opted by the mainstream that starts to take, take part in mainstream politics that, you know, the radical side or the, the insurgent side of which eventually comes into the fold, like, oh, I've given up my arms and now I'm going to run as a, I'm going to run as a candidate in the next election. It just becomes so benign. Like you can't, you're essentially agreeing to lay down your arms and and stop fighting to a certain extent. So true. And I think that's one of the things that um, Barack Obama often gets accused of um, by certain elements from either side. And I understand where they're coming from. I don't entirely agree, but I, I can understand where that, um, that comes from. So thinking maybe now's a good time to give just a brief summary of each book that we read. So as I mentioned, The Fire Next Time by James Baldwin is, starts with his letter to his nephew it contains some of those wonderful quotes that we uh, alluded to. It then goes on to his Christian street preaching days and his awakening, awakening from that. And I altogether, I utterly love this book. I would read it again. It's one of those that certainly, it cracked me open mentally, this one. It mentally cracked open my reality and realities and in terms of being able to write a book that has I would say a specific and unavoidable level of anger while simultaneously containing a deep level and a deep reserve of love that's one of the reasons that I would certainly recommend this book to um, those who feel they're ready I would say for anyone who is not experienced or steeped or educated in this sort of social space, it might be something that I would suggest is slightly advanced reading. And in that case, maybe if Beale Street could talk is a better starting point. What are your thoughts? When someone who is not educated in this type of sociopolitical issue, I think is not likely to as an adult like you either you either understand it or or you don't um you, you posting some black squares on instagram does not mean that you actually understand anything about the history of race relations or anything about how it's connected to imperialism or anything like that so Yes, if Beale Street could talk is a is a book that anyone can read. But if you don't understand the sociopolitical context before, you're probably not going to take out of it anything too life changing. You know what I mean? And and then you're certainly not going to read James Baldwin's nonfiction. 
I think that's exactly it. Um, so I left my current book club. And the interesting thing is the book they were reading before, just as I left, was The Hate You Give. The Hate You Give is a young adult fiction written for children between the ages of 10 and 12. And I heard about the meeting after the fact. And I do not regret leaving that book club because I thought if you cannot understand a book that is written to allow you to empathize with the sociopolitical context of uh, police killing unarmed black individuals, then there is nothing you're right at the James Baldwin level that is for that individual because it doesn't get any simpler than a young adult fiction at that point. Yeah, Baldwin is not book club material. And let's be honest, and I don't mean to denigrate book clubs. They're all, I mean, but I feel like somebody had this amazing quote, every time a black man is killed, white people form book clubs. And somehow it's done to kind of pat yourself on the back and be like, and I don't, I think it's great. I want people to read as much as possible. Like, I don't mean to, I never want to discourage anyone from reading ever, but it, it, it does matter what you're, if you're reading, if you're in Dr. Oz's book club, you know, you're going to have a different vibe from a book club that actually critically examines some of the unpleasant truths. Baldwin is going to be uncomfortable for a lot of people who are white because he, he's very raw and he's very honest about his emotions. And a lot of white people probably may react viscerally and feel like they're being personally attacked. And that's uncomfortable, but being uncomfortable is part of coming to terms with your role in upholding a fundamentally unfair society, right? But most people aren't mature enough to, to accept that. I'm guilty as well. Like I'm, I'm of South Asian origin and I only recently, you know, realized how there, and like sort of unconscious proximity to whiteness by immigrant communities in Canada, for example, has, has only helped continue to oppress black and indigenous people, for example. So, I mean, I'm still coming to terms with that and yeah, it's okay to be uncomfortable. I think it's, it's important, but like, yeah, it's uncomfortable sometimes. Right. It's part of life. It's entirely part of life to be uncomfortable. And so for, I think my all time favorite James Baldwin book is definitely The Devil Finds Work. It was the most impactful on me. As I said, it took a number of years afterwards to be able to simply watch a film and just appreciate it as a film. Some of the films that he refers to in this, uh, in this work include Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, for example, which I had seen ages ago with Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn, Sidney Poitier. I've watched much of Poitier's work. And he brings up some of the very, some of the very obvious in terms of here you have prodigy black doctor showing up in, I believe it was San Francisco neighborhood to the fam the family's house, the parents' house of his young, white, unaccomplished not all that important white girlfriend or fiance and telling Spencer Tracy, you know, I won't marry your daughter if you don't approve. And then you've got his parents coming in and the way in which they're portrayed and sort of the lie of Hollywood is the 
that his parents would sort of be meek and maybe against the marriage, which maybe they would have, but the meekness and the way in which his parents are portrayed is probably the, for me, the biggest part of the film that said it topsy-turvy because I thought, no, any, you know, you know, real life black parents of an accomplished World Health Organization doctor like that don't care. They're not going to come in in any fashion to a white family's house and act as anything other than. They have to be so much more in order to have gotten their son to that level in the first place. And that's often what's missing from that film. And he also refers to The Exorcist. Have you ever seen that film? I've seen The Exorcist. I haven't seen um, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. And I, I, so, I've seen The Exorcist, but I can't recall any racial elements to it. I mean, I was really young. <laughs> it's not a racial element. Well, not really. So what's interesting is I read The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis before I read this one. And The Screwtape Letters are basically constructed to be this uncle, devil or demon, who is writing to his nephew about how to corrupt his first family. And it's a real, it's a small book, but it's a real head trip to read. And when Baldwin talks about the exorcist, he's basically referring to the representation of the devil. So when I watched the exorcist, I was a child and I considered it more of a comedy than a horror movie because to me, there was something absolutely bizarre about this 13-year-old girl who was pretending, in many ways seemed clear to me, was pretending to be possessed by Pazuzu. Like, I didn't find it believable. But Baldwin writes in, at the end of The Devil Finds Work, For I have seen the devil by day and by night, and have seen him in you and in me, in the eyes of the cop and the sheriff and the deputy, the landlord, the housewife, the football player, in the eyes of some junkies, the eyes of some preachers, the eyes of some, go some governors, presidents, wardens, in the eyes of some orphans, and in the eyes of my father, and in my mirror. It is that moment when no other human being is real for you, nor are you real for yourself. This devil has no need of any dogma, though he can use them all nor does he need any historical justification, history being so largely his invention. He does not levitate beds or fool around with little girls. We do. And that's why he was referring to the exorcist. So even though there, it, it does stand out because so many of the other films that he refers to have either a black or in the case of Birth of a Nation, and I use the term because that is what is relevant to the film, Mulatto Presence, which is utterly strange. But here you have The Exorcist where Hollywood, basically his argument is that at this time of Halloween, Hollywood is trying to sell you these images of what they believe the devil is, while in fact the real devil is the one behind the scenes, behind the camera, pointing it in the directions that it wants you to see. So we have this idea that camera shows us the truth and the truth of who we are, but in fact, it can't because all it can really show us is what we pointed at. And if we are pointing it in directions that allow us to uphold various mythologies, then that's what gets put out there as truth. Um, when you mentioned guests is coming to dinner, I thought about Get Out. Did you see that? Absolutely. 
Oh. So, I mean, yeah, like, that's probably, I don't want to say, I mean, it's not realistic in a lot of ways, but just the dynamics of the family is probably more common today in certain parts of America. Absolutely. So Get Out, I think it it's amazing, an amazing film because of that ability for social commentary, comedy, and horror rolled into one. And it's actual li- lived and real experience of horror in that film. But then it ends and you watch the ending and you think, no, that's not how that story ends. It's good that you ended it that way, but that's not how it really ends. But I, I really, again, it's like, I think um, people who are probably never going to understand Baldwin are maybe not going to understand the message of that movie. Like a lot of people saw it. Like there's a lot of people who will just not understand what it's about at a deeper level that here's a white family that ticks all the boxes of being maybe like a Connecticut Democrat family. Um, but everything is, there's like this guy is still essentially a token and they still have all these, they, they say all these things to him that kind of make you understand what their mindset is. Anyway, it's, I just, that was the, I remember when it came out, I think people referred to Guess Who's Coming to Dinner as well as, like they weren't, I mean, they're comparing them in, in very different ways, but So when I'm discussing or looking at James Baldwin, The Devil Finds Work, I definitely recommend this for anyone who enjoys film, uh, enjoys television shows. It is a beautiful, beautiful critique of those. And I think we've already recommended If Beale Street Could Talk. Here's a question kind of to wrap things up here. Um, Well, two questions, actually. For you, were there moments or any particular moments in any of the books you read that really seemed to speak truth to you or that shifted your perspective? A lot of it. Baldwin speaks truth, whether it's in fiction or nonfiction. In terms of shifting my perspective, again, I don't mean to sound um, like a know-it-all. I have a lot to learn. I will never fully understand the Black experience in America or anywhere at all. But I came into Baldwin knowing that there is a serious problem already. It's not like I've read Baldwin and suddenly I realized that I understand where Black Lives Matter comes from. I understood that years ago when Trayvon Martin was murdered. You know, I, I've followed this for a long time. But I just think, if anything, that what I've understood is that 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 rage is ever present and it can coexist within a relationship, whether that's a romantic relationship or a friendship. And I don't mean to sound like I don't mean to belittle those relationships, but that there is an unspoken resentment. I think that may be an undercurrent in a lot of friendships or whatever that is always going to be there because you really cannot put yourself in someone else's shoes. Well, that was interesting. Cause one of the things I talked about with um, another friend a couple of days ago was what was it that made certain individuals able to read and digest the information 
provided by Baldwin and so many others. And we determined that it would have to be some combination of a level of humility and empathy in order for them to digest this information, take it in, and then choose to act upon it or to choose to learn more. Whereas, and that would shape the difference between individuals who do choose to go through that path of learning more about experiences that are not theirs and individuals who simply shut down and wish to continue eating their strawberry shortcake, referencing Tanishi Coates there. And I, like Baldwin's work just blows me away. I already shared the main quote that got me and the context around it. What was your sort of JB quote? He's all over the internet. So I, I honestly can't pick... Um... I'm going to, again, go through my list. There's one on page 113 that I've noted. Um, it says here, okay, so it's a longer quote. Um, so he just says, um, I mean, I don't know how to paraphrase this. The white world is too powerful, too complacent, too ready with its gratuitous humiliation, and above all, too ignorant and too innocent for that. One is absolutely forced to make perpetual qualifications and one's own reactions are always canceling each other out. It is this really which has driven so many people mad, both black and white. One is always in the position of having to decide between amputation and gangrene. Amputation is swift, but time may prove that amputation, amputation was not necessary or one may delay the amputation too long. Gangrene is slow, but it, it is impossible to be sure that one is reading one's symptoms right. The idea of going through life as a cripple is more than one can bear and equally unbearable is the risk of swelling up slowly in agony with poison. And the trouble finally is that these risks are real even if the choices do not exist. I think that's a perfect um, summary of what it's like to be a black person in America specifically. That you, you risk, when you speak out, you're taking a risk and when you don't speak out, you're also taking a risk. That's a pretty good way. To it's a long quote, but it's spot on, I would say. So to end on a slightly lighter note, what would you say is your ideal environment for reading Baldwin? Uh, I, I have multiple environments in which I like to read, but for something like Baldwin that really requires you to pay attention, it's not a light read ever. Um, I would probably need to be in like at a desk or okay if you were to take james baldwin and create a film outside of if beale street could talk which one do you think might make a decent film i think any of the non any of his non-fiction experiences could be adapted for screenplay especially as a black gay man in Paris in the 60s. I think that would be really interesting. That's so funny because I my next Baldwin book will probably be Giovanni's Room. And I suspect, and I'll have to confirm this later, but I suspect that that one might make a good film. Right. I, I, forget, I, I forget what that is about, but it was, I did briefly kind of look at the synopsis when I was trying to figure out what I should read after. That is one of his more famous books. Um, probably more nonfiction. The Fire This Time. Um, and then he has other books of essays. The Fire Next Time. 
the fire yeah the fire next time because i don't recall who the author is of the fire this time as people are playing with his title the fire this time the fire is upon us everybody's talking about the fire so if james baldwin were an emoji which emoji do you think he'd be well okay so here's the thing you can pick skin tone on emojis now but that's controversial too i'd pick fire he'd just be fire you know the exploding brain emoji that's a good one i use that a lot <laughs> yes or is that exploding brain emoji more so us than him it's us reacting to him yeah so yeah i i think i just picked the fire emoji that would be james baldwin because i personally like fire so anyway thank you uh for sitting here and chatting with me over this period about the indomitable James Baldwin. He is an incredible author and writer and thinker and playwright and essayist and activist all in one small uh, package um, who's no longer with us. Bizarre accidental trend on this podcast. And um, I would just like to say thanks to those of you who are listening to Cracked for Readers by Readers. You can find us on Instagram at cracked for our at cracked underscore for our br and email us at cracked for our br at gmail.com. Cracked is about creating a community of readers dedicated to a deeper dive into a diversity of authors. This time we were covering James Baldwin. I'm glad you're able to join us. Next time, we're gonna keep it a surprise. Cracked for Readers by Readers is produced with thanks to Jason McKay of JMK Audio Productions and myself, Monique Ninviel. I'd like to take a moment to provide some editor's notes on this episode covering James Baldwin. First off, Beale Street is a street in Memphis, Tennessee. It is somewhat the ground zero for blues clubs in that area and certainly worth a visit. Medgar Evans was a friend of Baldwin and a civil rights activist. He was assassinated in 1963 and perhaps not as well known as Malcolm X and Martin Luther King. I referred to James's nephew at one point as his son and just to be clear, he's definitely his nephew and a namesake. As for preferences over fiction or nonfiction, written by Baldwin. Uh, Yasmin and I, I think we did make it clear later on that we both infinitely prefer his nonfiction as our points of interaction with him. And finally, the basis for the documentary, I Am Not Your Negro, that Yasmin referred to as a 2016 film directed by Raoul Peck, was in fact based on Baldwin's unfinished manuscript, Remember This House. Baldwin is a literary behemoth and certainly a challenging author to cover in my second episode of this podcast. However, he has given me language at times when I did not have language and has filled me with hope at times when I had lost hope and pointed me in the direction of optimism when I wasn't sure which way to look. And so I personally owe him a debt of gratitude and I hope that through this episode, uh, for those of you listening, that you were able to somewhat find your way as a point of entry into what I would agree is a more advanced 
uh, discussion and discourse on race relations. I definitely focused on America. However, I feel that it is relevant even outside of the borders of the United States. James Baldwin is a literary behemoth, and so it was certainly not an easy person to cover uh, in an hour and 20-ish minutes. And he's also the one who inspired and helped to support so much of the literature that we read today, including I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings, where the popular history or story behind that one is that we wouldn't even have that book if it weren't for Baldwin indicating to Maya Angelou's editor that the way to get her to write that brilliant bio autobiography would be to tell her that she couldn't do it. And thankfully, that worked. There are, of course, various bi biographies on Baldwin, and then there are reflections and tributes to his work, including Jessamine Ward, who is the author of The Fire This Time, Nicholas Bucola, The Fire Is Upon Us, Eddie Glade's Begin Again, and Tanahesi Coates, whose formation of Between the World and Me was certainly inspired by Baldwin's letter to his nephew. I really hope you enjoyed this episode of Cracked um, and that you will take your time to explore fiction or nonfiction by James Baldwin. And we'd love to hear what you think of it. You can follow us on Instagram at cracked underscore for our BR, or you can email us and we're always happy to hear from you. We are at cracked for our BR at gmail.com. This episode, once again, was brought to you in audio production magic by Jason McKay of JMK Audio Productions and myself, Monique Minviel. We're happy that you were able to join us. Let's get cracked. <laughs>